Well, welcome to all who are worshiping with us today, whether you're worshiping online or at our West Campus or here in Newburgh. Man, it is good to just be regathering again. And uh, yeah, we can just clap for that for sure. You know, regardless of where you might be worshiping from today, we pray that you feel the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life and just pray that uh, we would just all continue to lean in on this journey we are on to uh, live and love like Jesus. And just before we jump into the sermon, I just want to say thank you for your patience and understanding and even your grace. I mean, over the past uh, three and a half months, this is very unscripted kind of territory that our entire world is really walking through. And I just appreciate our church family just kind of leaning into as we've been navigating this time, I'm certainly grateful for our elders and for the lead team and our team and staff around us and many who volunteered today. It's just been really, really uh, encouraging, even in the midst of crazy, right? And I uh, just want to let you know that our heart here at Crossroads is just to ensure that every person will grow spiritually through this ministry. We want to create a place where people can worship in spirit and truth and also a place where we find a deep Christian community. And we care about every person who calls Crossroads home. We've tried to do that well during this period. And uh, specifically, I just want to mention that our service schedule right now, having services at 9, 11, 5.30 on Sunday here in Newburgh and 9, 11 on a Sunday morning at our West campuses, we just want you to know that that's the spirit by which we're doing this in this current moment. And I want to speak specifically, if you're a person who typically worships on Saturday night, I just want to let you know that, you know, any long-term change we would make to our service schedule will first come after seeking God's heart through prayer and seeking his wisdom, as well as listening and, and being attentive to our church family and, and receiving input. And we want to do a great job helping all of us walk in healthy spiritual rhythms and also continue to learn and live out what it looks like to live and love like Jesus. And so thank you for your patience. We'll try to continue to communicate as regularly as possible. So make sure you're tuning in to all those communication channels. And I also just want to say thanks for RSVPing. I know that's something a little bit different for church, but it really is helping us manage through this moment. And uh, thanks for your patience and your grace in that. I also want to say a happy Father's Day. And if you're a dad here today or joining us for worship, a, a special celebration to you. You know, every mom says the one thing they want for Mother's Day is for all their family to join them at church. And if you ask a dad, he wants everybody to go to church except him so he can go play golf or just get them out of his hair for a little bit. So if you're a dad and you're worshiping with us today, I just want to say thank you for making God a priority in your life. I'm honored today to have my dad here worshiping with us at Crossroads. Uh, my dad is a man that I love and respect dearly. He is a, a great, powerful example of a godly man, a godly husband and father, a godly pastor and preacher. You know, uh, my dad is a lover but he's also can be a fighter. He's a man of strong conviction. Uh, he's a, a steadfast man, a hard worker, servant hearted, kind. Uh, he's not perfect. I'm not appointing him for sainthood today, but uh, he knows that. I know that. But also he loves God and he loves others well. In fact, oh, here's a picture of me and my dad and my brother. You can tell I get my height from my dad. You see? And uh, it looks like my brother gets his good looks from my dad too. But uh, thank you, dad, for being here this weekend. It's certainly an honor and privilege to, to know him. And, and I'll be honest, when I think of somebody who lives and loves like Jesus, I don't have to think too hard about a person. That, that's my dad. 
Uh, we're going to continue our journey on learning how to live and love like Jesus ourselves, And we're doing that by studying through the book of John. And today we're going to be looking at John chapter 9. So if you brought a copy of the Bible or you have one on a device, I'd encourage you to turn with me to John chapter 9. We've entitled this new series, Turning Point, The Turning Point. Something that's happening in the life of ministry in Jesus. First of all, the religious leaders are ramping up their attack on Jesus. They are looking for the time and the way to kill Jesus because they've had enough of him already. And Jesus, despite all that, has never been more laser focused on his identity and his mission. And he will not let anything turn him away from what God has called him to do, the work that God has given him to do. And we're going to say that play out over the remainder of the gospel of John. As we'll see today, the spiritual leaders were, were spiritually blinded and that kept them from embracing Jesus through faith in his identity and mission they could care less about. And so in this turning point, we want to see how we cannot let sin or disillusionment or guilt or pride keep us from what God's work is in our life and the work that he's called us to do. And today we'll see the, a progression of faith in a person's life that I think really shows us what it looks like to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and how we can let his light fill us and also shine through us. Now, Jesus has just celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. That was one of the big three uh, celebrations in Judaism. He's been in Jerusalem doing that. And in that moment, he just makes two big proclamations. The first is, I am the light of the world. And Jesus, today, we will see the impact of his light and how he miraculously brings sight to somebody who has been trapped in darkness. We're going to look at John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. So follow along as I read there. We're going to see the miracle that happens. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, talking about Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, well, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and he made some mud with his saliva and he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said to the man, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had uh, merely seen him begging said, isn't this the man we used to see sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How were your eyes then open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. There's a lot going on in those verses. And one is that there is a very powerful miracle that happens. This is another sign that proves that Jesus truly is the Messiah. He is fully God and fully human. I hope in your journal, you're kind of taking note. Every time we see a sign that points like ding, 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 this is the guy, this is the one. Pay attention to him, watch him, learn how to follow his example, place your faith in him. 
But I wonder if you caught the question that the disciples asked Jesus. They wanted to know who was responsible for this man's blindness. Was it some sin he had committed or a sin that his parents had committed? This man had been blind since birth. So they were even inferring that this man may have sinned in the womb. Now, that seems a little crazy to us, but it actually was a common thought that if there was any deformity or any sickness or suffering in a person's life, it was a direct result of sin. And in that first century, that was actually taught. They taught, well, if you're healthy and wealthy, then that must be because you're righteous and God is blessing you. But if you have any suffering in your life or sickness or illness, then that's God punishing you for your wickedness. The health and wealth gospel is actually still prominent in many Christian circles today, but it it reflects the type of thinking that went on in the first century. In the very first century, first and second century, the, the common worldview of that time was called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism just believed a couple things. They believed that there was a good God that created the world, but he was distant. He was impersonal. He wasn't active in a relational way. The Gnostics really elevated spiritual more than physical. In fact, they believed that God existed in spirit form, but they did not recognize Jesus in the person or Jesus in in human flesh. And that's why many think John took out his pen and wrote this letter, this gospel, to say that, no, Jesus is the word in the flesh, like he's been saying from the very beginning, right? And you might think, well, Gnosticism is probably, you know, out of date now. Well, actually, no, it is still a foundational worldview that exists in our world today. Some observations in psychologists have actually kind of broadened the label. And they say that there is a moral therapeutic deism that exists in our world today. Now, that sounds like a big world I may have learned in seminary, right? So let me just kind of break it down for you, right? First of all, moral. Well, it believe, there's this belief that everybody should just behave and be good. You know, Christianity is not the only one who teaches morality. Pretty much all world religions, they are there for the good of people. They want people to behave. Well, what about therapeutic? Well, therapeutic focuses on feelings more than thought. And so what motivates and what permeates our politics, our churches, our religion, even our laws is, is how we feel about things. And that's kind of the guiding principle. And last of all, deism. Well, deism is directly related back to that Gnostic view is that God did create the world, but he's not active. He certainly isn't knowable or have any personal relationship with. And so that kind of thinking is certainly present in this interaction that Jesus and his disciples are having with this man born blind. They also are are just stumped. Like, how could this condition Where did it come from? You know, there are many people in our world today who still believe that if a person has a sickness or an illness or if there's some mental inability, it's because they have a demon or that they're possessed. My family and I witnessed this, observed this firsthand when our family went to Kenya on a mission trip. And because my son has a developmental disability, there were people who who they noticed he was different and they wanted nothing to do with him because they actually thought he may be possessed or demon possessed. That's still prominent today. And if we don't go that far, I think all of us would admit that we do a pretty good job categorizing people by the external. Like when we see somebody that we think is rich, we're kind of like, hey, I kind of want to get to know them, right? Or if we see somebody that we think is kind of poor, we're like, oh, we don't really have time for that today. You know, if we think somebody's educated, we want to learn from them. Or even we do a great job categorizing people by the color of their skin, don't we? one way or the other. 
And so what the disciples are doing there is not so far-fetched. It's something that we might be able to relate with. So there is a general connection between sin and suffering. And that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve's sin and the fall in the garden. And there sometimes is a direct connection between a person's sin and individual suffering, but not always. Psychology has shown us that there are some things that are hereditary, some human conditions like alcoholism that does seem to be passed from one generation to the next. Sin has consequences. If not physical, then certainly spiritual. And those can be passed down from one generation to the next. The sins of parents can wreak havoc in the life of their kids. But so can godliness. Godliness can be a ripple effect that passes on from one generation to the next. While it's true that sin can lead to suffering, everyone is perplexed when a a pretty good person has a hard time. When a bad thing happens to a good person, we all kind of scratch our head and say, that doesn't make sense. That's not how it's supposed to go. Well, we have a book in the Bible that actually addresses that, right? The book of Job. It's found in the Old Testament. If you want to walk through like a person who didn't deserve what he got, Job is your man. But we also see in the New Testament that Paul says that he was given a thorn in his flesh. And it wasn't because of sin. It was because he could see the power of God working in his life when he struggled in this way. And that ironically, or just maybe uh, providentially that I'm looking for, providentially is exactly how Jesus responds to his disciples about their question of this blind man. Jesus refuted that the cause of this man's blindness was a sin that he had committed or the sin of his parents. And he says in John 9, 3, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We're going to see Jesus say almost the exact same thing in chapter 11 when he hears about a best friend of his, Lazarus, being sick. And he says those almost exact same words. Rather than being the result of sin, hardship and suffering may be part of God's plan to reveal his power. And understanding that suffering can be used for God's glory, that's a concept that's really difficult to wrap our arms around. But it is central to the biblical understanding of how you and I do life. You know, if you're struggling in some way right now, maybe there's just something that has just been wreaking havoc in your life. And you're wondering, like, how can I make sense of this? How can I work through this? Several people have recommended to me the book by Tim Keller called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's funny, I got an early Father's Day present this past week. My son, who listens to lots of my sermons and spends lots of time with me, must hear me talk about Tim Keller a lot. And so he and his sister were at Hobby Lobby and he pulls out his billfold with his hard-earned allowance and he saw a Tim Keller book and he bought it. He's been reading page after page after page. It's kind of like a a, a great Father's Day gift to, to me, you know? Well, uh, Jesus in verse four, he says something to his disciples. He invites them in to the work that God has given him to do. And he says, we have to do this work while it's still light. And he's referring to the time of darkness that's coming, actually referring to his death on the cross when literal darkness covered the entire face of the world. And Jesus, in this moment, repeats his declaration that he had made at the Feast of Tabernacles. He says, I am the light of the world. And the miracle that Jesus performed was significant because it was a fulfillment of a prophecy about the Messiah that he would actually restore sight to the blind. Isaiah 29, 
35 and 42 all point to this. There were other false messiahs who had performed many miracles in uh, Jesus' day, but Jesus was the only one who had ever healed someone of their eyesight being blind. The other gospels actually record Jesus performing many miracles healing the blind, but John is the only one who points out somebody that had been blind from birth. I think he resembles the man we saw in John chapter five that had been paralyzed for 38 years. We don't know how old this man is. We know that he's probably older than 13, but he has been blind since birth. How Jesus heals this man is really important. Let me just point out a couple things. The first is he spat on the ground. In all the other moments when Jesus healed a blind person, he actually spit on their face. And it was believed in the ancient world that the spittle of a holy man had actually miraculous powers. That's why I'm not preaching mask today. So that like if you in the front row get some spittle, maybe something wonderful will happen in your life, right? You've been warned, okay? Uh, He made mud. Some people see in this moment where Jesus makes mud a reflection of his participation in the early creation was part of the Trinity that God took dust from the earth and made man. And Jesus instructed this man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now that pool was actually where the water was gathered during the Feast of Tabernacles, during the water ritual. And in that moment when that happened, Jesus had made this declaration in John 7. He says, let everyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture says, streams of living water will flow from within them. And that's about to happen to this man who Jesus has encountered. There's a really cool parallel in the Old Testament with this moment. It's in the ministry and life of Elisha, 2 Kings chapter 5, where a man named Naaman came to Elisha to be healed because he had leprosy. And when Naaman met, or when Elisha met him, he instructed him to go wash in the Jordan River. And when the man obeyed, he actually was healed and restored. The power of God was at work in Naaman's life and also in this unnamed blind man that we meet in John 9. The healing of this man was met with mixed reactions. I mean, first among his neighbors and friends, they recognized him as a beggar who was blind and used to just beg for his existence. And some said, this can't be him, he can see now. But the man insisted, I am that person. And they asked him, well, how did you get your sight? And he said, that man named Jesus is the one who healed me. John notes that the day that this miracle happened was actually the Sabbath. And we've already seen Jesus be in hot water with the religious leaders because of him doing things that they thought were wrong on the Sabbath day. And that's where we pick up uh, in John 9, some interrogations that these people uh, put on this blind man. John 9 verse 13 is where it begins. The religious leaders, they wanted to know how this man had received their sight. And so he recounted the facts. He said, he put mud on my eyes, I washed, and now I see. It was just as simple as that. But instead of being amazed at the miracle and convinced of Jesus as the Messiah, the religious leaders quibbled over their man-made regulations about the Sabbath and kind of debated whether Jesus should have healed him or not. The Sabbath laws uh, prohibited kneading dough. And so by Jesus making mud, they like flew the yellow flag and said, oh, hold on, you violated the laws of the Sabbath. And so they again, they turned to this man and they said, hey, since it was your eyes who, who got open, tell us what you think about this man. And the man who had been healed said, this man, meaning Jesus, is a prophet. 
Well, look at verse 18 of chapter nine. They still did not believe that, they, that he had been born blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked him? Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. His parents confirmed his identity and his condition, but they were reluctant to speak on how he was healed because they feared the religious leaders who would not only punish them, but also kick them out of the synagogue. And for them to be kicked out of the synagogue was not that they just couldn't show up for a worship service. It was actually they would be excommunicated from all of the community. I think we can maybe empathize with them a little bit, having not been able to worship together in one place. We maybe feel that distance from our church family. The religious leaders, they weren't going away easy. They kept applying the pressure. Look in verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know that this man is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I can see. And then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've already told you and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? They then hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but for this fellow, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, now that's remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of anyone opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. I like this guy. I like how he responds to the religious leaders. He is confident in what God had done in his life. And he's also not dumb to their questions and their disbelief about Jesus. So he begins asking them questions. He says, didn't you hear me the first time? I mean, how many parents have actually quoted those, this man before? Did you not hear me the first, second, third, fourth, fifth time, right? He says, oh, you want to become one of his disciples too. Can you hear the sarcasm in his voice? Then he says, uh, you don't know where he came from? I mean, he opened my eyes. Do you really believe that if he was a sinner, he would be able to do such a miracle? Well, the religious leaders stake their claim as being followers of the law and followers of Moses. And what they miss is that Jesus actually wrote the law. He knows the heart of the law and their disbelief continues to lead them in the wrong direction and blind them. They were more concerned to show contempt for Jesus than to celebrate and take pleasure for this man's restoration. They speak derogatorily to the man who was healed. They excommunicate him from the synagogue, but that's not the end of his story. Look what happens next. It's the change. John chapter nine, verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and he went and found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is this, sir? The man asked, tell me so I can believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. 
Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I think that's my favorite part of this entire encounter. Jesus went looking for him. Jesus found him to this man who had been in darkness from birth to this man who had had to beg for his entire existence to this man who had been abandoned by his parents when pressured. He came to know Jesus, not only as healer, but as savior and Lord. He had never seen Jesus physically because when Jesus told him to go wash at the pool of Siloam, he was still blind. And so in this moment, when he finally does see Jesus face to face, how he responds is Lord. And he falls at Jesus' feet and worshiped him. The original word is not just like worship you, but like fall on your face, prostrate at the feet of Jesus. And I see that as an act of surrender and also an act of worship. This is not a unique occurrence, just for some unknown man who just happened to see Jesus when he was here on earth. Jesus continues to open the eyes of those, of all of us, physically, but more importantly, spiritually, and to bring healing and salvation and worship to those who truly encounter him. And I wanted you to see a modern day example of just what that looks like when a person sees Jesus for who he truly is. Check out this video. I was uh, what was referred to as church growing up. Went to Lutheran grade school, went to uh, church service during the week, Sunday school, Sunday church, uh, confirmation. You know, I knew who God was, but I really don't think I knew him personally. During my youth, I was exposed to domestic violence, alcoholism, personal injury, death. My grandmother passed. And then I was in a car wreck in which I had to learn to walk again at 15. Two years later, when I was 17, my mother passed away from cancer. And then at 21, my father passed away. So I, back to back to back, I I had some rough years there. You know, you ask why this stuff happens, right? And uh, I blamed God for for these things. And I was actually mad at God. I uh, just started drifting further and further away with my relationship with God. Um, And at that point, I pretty much had stopped asking for forgiveness and stopped praying. And I didn't really feel like things were going to change. So why ask for forgiveness? I was in darkness for 35 years. And um, uh, it was just a, a very bad time, very lost. But that all changed, though. Uh, in 2017, my youngest daughter, Liddy, uh, brought home a flyer from school for an after-school program, a uh, light company at Crossroads. And we signed her up. And I just remember the first time going to Crossroads, it, the atmosphere was very inviting, very welcoming. Uh, shortly after, Liddy wanted to start going to church there, right? And, you know, I wasn't going to not deny Uh, Liddy the opportunity to form a relationship with God. So my wife Camille and I, we started attending, and I just remember the first time that we went to service there, the the message was speaking to me. And we knew right then that this was a good thing for everyone involved, and we would be back. You know, I could go on and on about the, the messages that we hear uh, each week and and how each one of them was exactly what I needed to hear at that moment. 
But there was one in particular, though, that was was a turning point for me, and, and that one was about forgiveness. And, you know, I was right about one thing, was that I didn't deserve to be forgiven, right? But what I learned, forgiveness is a gift from God, and forgiveness is a gift uh, from God because He loves us, and that, you know, He gave us Jesus Christ as, as, as a, you know, our Savior to die on that cross for us to forgive our sins. And we're, we're going to sin, but our sins are forgiven. And as long as we give ourselves to, to Christ, everything's going to be okay. So that was a big turning point for me. And, you know, once I was able to, to ask for forgiveness and to forgive, um, and really just live in the present and not in the past, uh, things got a lot better for me. You know, my life uh, got better. Uh, my relationship with my wife, with my family, uh, professionally, everything got better once I reestablished my relationship with God. One of the most memorable parts of my journey back to Christ is when uh, my family decided to get baptized. So on June 4th, 2017, Camille, Woody, and I uh, got baptized right here in the church where we found God. So where I'm at today with my relationship with God, uh, serving on the weekend worship team, you know, none of that would have been possible without accepting God's forgiveness. You know, I know that God is, um, God's forgiveness is, is not earned, it's not deserving, but because God is an intimate God and God loves me, I am forgiven. It's a powerful picture of life change. I love uh, worshiping with Scott as he leads us in worship. A lot of times here in Newburgh playing the bass guitar. And uh, I love seeing the light that has filled Scott's heart. I love to see it just shine through him and shine uh, in him and uh, all around him and Camille and their girls. I thank you for the life change, God, that you've done in Scott's life. And I, I love the fact that he has seen the light. I mean, he's come to understand that forgiveness is not something we deserve. It's something that God gives us because he loves us. And I love the fact that he's understood the power of community and also that he's been gifted to, to serve God and others. And I see that just bearing fruit in his life. You know, it's the difference from being blind to being able to see. And the blind man that Jesus met that day, he's the only one who really appropriately responds to Jesus that day. He recognized that the light had come and, and filled his heart and it dispelled all the darkness. And when you and I encounter Jesus, it should change us. You might not know everything about him in that moment, but when you allow him to work in your life, I don't think you'll ever be the same. I love the statement that the man makes to the religious leaders. He says, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And that stark contrast is between him who was blind and now can see and the religious leaders who thought they could see everything and knew everything. And yet how blinded they were to who Jesus truly is. The blind refers to those in spiritual darkness because they don't believe in Jesus. And Jesus came to open our eyes, to give us light and revelation, to bring direction and salvation. 
And those who think they see, like the religious leaders, they inevitably reject Jesus because of their pride. Someone has said that unbelief often claims to be scientific, but it's actually just stubborn and willful. The blind who come to sight are those who recognize their helplessness and they trust Jesus for salvation. So what can you and I take away from just seeing this encounter Jesus has with this man born blind? Well, I got to be, first of all, just a little personal with you right now. It was about just shy of 20 years ago when I read John 9 for the first time. And in that moment, I had the exact same questions as the disciples that day. I was just fresh of being a dad the second time. It was right after the birth of my son, Cade. And when the doctor said, Mr. and Mrs. Heller, your son's been born with Down syndrome. He'll never walk, talk, laugh, cry, or do anything that normal kids do. I'm really sorry. I'll come back and answer some questions for you in a little bit. The whole world went dark. And it felt dark for a long time. And you know what? There were some questions that I had. And one of those questions are like, God, what did I do to deserve this? And the second question was probably more haunting. What did I do to cause this? Because I was pretty sure that it was my fault. That there was something wrong with me or something that I had done that was really bad and not confessed that God was punishing me by giving me this cross to bear. And when I read John 9 and heard the disciples asking that question, I felt like they were asking it for me. And I needed to hear Jesus' response. It's like, it's not your sin, it's not his sin, but this has happened so that the works of God would come in his life. And I can tell you, it's been a privilege for the past almost 20 years to watch time and time again, God continue his great work in my son's life, in my daughter's life, in my life. Has it been easy? No. Have all of us faced hard times and suffering? Probably yes. But God can take all of that and do his work in us and through us. His light can come and shine in us and dispel all the darkness. And when that happens, the only response is for us to let that light shine, just like the man who had been born blind. So whatever you might be struggling with today or suffering from, don't let Satan's lies speak guilt to you and think it must have been something you did or, or point the finger at somebody else and say it's because of what they did. But let God work in your life despite what you might be going through right now. Let his light shine in you as the light of the world. And as it does, let it shine out of you to a world that needs to see hope, who needs to see peace, who needs to see strength that doesn't come from within us, but comes from God, who is capable, that there's nothing impossible with him. Come and see who Jesus truly is. Allow him to work in your life. He can bring healing physically and spiritually. He can deliver you. He can fill you with his light. Place your trust and faith in him and find life in him. If you need help seeing the light of Jesus today, whatever you might be going through, we're here to help you. All you simply have to do if you're here worshiping in person or if you're online or at the West Campus is simply text NOW, N-O-W, NOW to 812-858-8668. We do that so that we can help you see Jesus for who he truly is. And if you're ready to place your faith in him as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, we want to help you to know how to do that and take your next steps with him.
You know, maybe today is hard for you because the earthly father that you had isn't so much a great reflection of your heavenly father. And we realize that sometimes that can be crippling to people. And so we just want to let you know that we're here to help you, to help you see a clearer picture of who your heavenly father actually is. You know, for those of us who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior already, we know what he has done and is doing in our life. We have a responsibility and that responsibility is to walk in that light, to live in that light. And Paul wrote a powerful letter to the Ephesians and he describes what it looks like to let that light fill you and also shine from you. And as I read it this past week, I thought it might be just a powerful description of this man that we've just met in John chapter nine. So instead of asking you a discussion question for you to talk about or think about, what I'm gonna ask you to do as we close today is just listen to the words of Paul in Ephesians chapter five. And I want you to ask yourself, just take some personal inventory. Maybe what's one area, what's one thing that, that Paul challenges me to do to live in the light, that I can let the light of Christ shine more in my life. Just listen to the words or you can follow along as they're on the screen. Ephesians chapter five. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, which a person is an idolater, has any inheritance of the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, don't be partners with them. For you were once in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything examined or exposed by the light becomes visible. And everything that's illuminated becomes a light. That is why it's said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Loving others, living righteously, expressing purity, glorifying God. I mean, those are ways for the light to fill you and be reflected in you. The light of Christ gives us sight. It helps guide our path. It shines through us to a world that's so filled with darkness. So don't remain in that darkness any longer. Encounter Jesus. Know what he has done for you in your life. Surrender your life to him and give him glory for all things that he does. Let's pray together. God, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for showing up in the flesh to know that, for us to know that you're real. Help us to see the light that Jesus shines 
God, help us to see the difference he makes in our life and has made in our life. And God, I pray that that wouldn't just stay on the inside, God, but it would burst forth and shine like a beacon of light in a place, a dark world that becomes darker, it seems, every day. God, this world needs light. And that's why you have revealed yourself to us so we could see you clearly. And God, I pray for every person who has never knelt at your feet in worship and surrendered to you that today could be that day where they see you for who you are and they see what you can do in their life and they would choose to place their faith in you and live for you. God, I pray for the rest of us who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. God, I pray that that wouldn't just feel like a one-time moment, but it actually would be something that compels us and guides us and conforms us every day to living and loving more like Jesus so that the world can see light. They can have hope. They can find direction and they can see that that is you living in us. God, would you send us from this place today as bearers of the light so that people would come to know you? We pray that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.